So this morning, uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, a passage that we looked at two weeks ago, and we'll look back at it again today. Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Uh, Please continue to pray for our pastor who is away. I saw a Facebook status update. He was on a bullet train uh, the other day, so who knows what he's doing uh, with Parker having a good time with family there. He doesn't have all his family. Uh, His family is still here uh, and uh, some of his family, but he and Parker are there. So keep everybody in your prayers as he continues um, uh, to take his sabbatical. Bryce, you're alone and you're walking back in church. Hello. Uh, Welcome. 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 Yes. Oh, Lord have mercy. Uh, The passage uh, will be up on our screen and I will invite you uh, to read this text Uh, together. When I ask you to read, it is not just to hear your lovely voices. Um, We read together as God's people as a spiritual practice. Now, sometimes the preacher uh, will read through the text, but sometimes we invite you to read. And it may be the only time that the church on a weekly basis, gets together to hear God's word in our own voices. So I tell you that to get you primed and ready to read the word of God. Um, We need to hear your voice, and we need to hear God's voice in your voice. So if you are a slow reader, you might want to speed up a little bit. If you are a fast reader, uh, slow down a little bit and come to Luke 24. Uh, verses 13 to 35. I won't read. I'll listen to you, okay? I'll get you started. Let's read. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Walking with God is uh, my sermon title. And walking with God makes us vulnerable because walking with God always brings questions. Sometimes we... Sometimes we ask the questions... But most of the time, if we're honest, it's God who brings them up. If we look into Scripture, the Word of God is full of times when God asks questions. God asked Adam the first Question in Scripture in Genesis. He said, Adam, where are you? And after that, dozens of queries mark the relationship between God and humankind. To Cain, God asked, Where is your brother? To Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child in my old age? To Moses, when Moses was skittish and fearful about pursuing the call of God upon his life, God asked, what is in your hand? To Job, when Job, after that long, old, poetic book, uh, asks God question after question, God said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? To Isaiah, when Isaiah had that vision of heaven and splendor and heat and glory, whom shall I send and who will go for us? To the woman in the Bible that scripture says was caught in adultery, where are your accusers? To the unnamed blind man, what do you want me to do for you? To Saul, why are you persecuting me? There are more. Questions decorate The world of scripture. In our text, we have another set of examples of God in Christ raising questions. And this morning, I want you to think with me about the spirituality of questions. We ask God our own questions, and I think we should ask God questions. I think we should ask God more questions, if for no other reason than to be surprised by God's answers. But I want you to consider this morning that questions, the questions that Jesus raises in Luke 24 can become a spirituality for us, a way of living in God's directions, that questions can form a path we walk upon, questions can be a route we take to look into us and into God. Jesus asks three questions here, and I'll use his questions as boulevards for us to wander down and to point us into a direction today. His first question is, what are you discussing together as you walk along? His second question is, what things? His third question is, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory. Let's look this morning at these three questions and then we can go pot luck and talk and jaw and talk and play. The first. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Jesus here wants to know what they're talking about. The things that are current to them are important to Jesus. The things that are current to them are current to him. He is interested in the goings-ons of their lives. We, we talk about what matters to us, don't we? We moan and groan. We celebrate. We, we complain. We pray and we worry and we invite other people into our praying and our worrying. 
As Tim mentioned our prayer ministry, we will come up and we will invite folks to intercede for us and and to wrap us in their arms and to, to pray with us because there are things that matter to us. And Jesus seems to be asking in this passage and in our hearing this morning about the things that matter. We know Cleophas. We don't know who his companion is. As I said two weeks ago, it could be a a wife. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a friend, a fellow uh, disciple. We do not know. But Jesus is asking these two travelers about the things that matter to them. And the language of this text, when Jesus raises this question, what are you discussing, is language that has to do with what they are holding. Say the word hold. What are you holding? What are you holding between you as you walk along? Think of that this morning. Try to hear the strong one asking you, what are you holding on to as you walk? There they are. And here we are, holding things as we travel. Sometimes we try to get past the things that burden us when Jesus is trying to point them out. Are you hearing me this morning? Sometimes we function in life on autopilot and it's a good question that stalls us, that furrows our brows and makes us question. What am I talking about all day long? What have I spent my evening speaking to my best friend about? What am I holding? As I end my day, as I wrap up today, who do I spend those moments thinking about? The answers to these questions are the things we hold. I have a a mentor, a spiritual mother. She's a preacher, she's a teacher, and um, she goes to different places and preaches. And at one time, she went to a church walked into the church where she was to preach, pulling luggage. It was the kind that has wheels on it, but she came into the church pulling her suitcase. And she walked through the evening. She wasn't the first or the only person to preach that night. And so everywhere she went, from her seat to the restroom, she pulled her luggage. And I thought to mimic her, to show how she did it. But you can imagine, she pulled her luggage And it wasn't until she got up somewhere in the middle of her message that she made a point because people did not raise the question, why are you walking around with luggage? Nobody asked her. Nobody really pressed her. And and she made her point to say, just like tonight where I've walked around with luggage and no one has questioned me, we often walk around carrying, pulling, and holding things. And we barely acknowledge it. We often walk around pulling things and being burdened by things. And no one says anything. 
In the church, and we try not to be a new community, but in the church, we can foster an environment where we carry bags but never open them. We, we can be the kind of community where we pull junk and burden and bruises around and nobody ever really point them out. Your marriage, for example, is cracking up and, and, and it's like luggage that you pull but you never share. I appreciate ministry, uh, the casual um, uh, um, unstructured, uh, organic ministry of people like Brian and Janae Jenkins who are mentoring singles. It's not a ministry of the church, but, but they are in the face of singles and married people who are pulling baggage and they're saying, how's that baggage going? They're, they're doing like Dan and Wendy Radakovich who do this as well. Some of you know that Dan will ask you about your baggage any day of the week, that Wendy will listen and talk with you about the things you pull and that is, is what I think Jesus is getting to when he raises this question with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. What are you discussing together as you walk along? In other words, what are you holding on to? If I was crazy enough to go back to school and to study something like biology or anatomy or finance, if I was crazy enough to do it, and I am not, that, that course of study would be a burden over my shoulders, and I would bring my book to church because I know some of y'all, you live that stuff. You could walk me through what would be a burden to me. And I think Jesus is inviting these two and inviting us when he asks this question to consider what it is we're holding and what it is God may be asking about those things. He asked that first question, what are you discussing together as you walk along? The second question that he raises in verse 19 is what things? Ask that. Say what things? Oh, come on, you warmed your vocal cords up. You can say it a little louder. Say it. What things? At first glance, this short question sounds like a restatement to the earlier one. Jesus seems to just reference what he's already asked. Is he repeating himself in shorter form? I think that the first question he raises is about the two travelers and what has been happening. But as Jesus hears their response, he shortens and sharpens his question, and I think it's because he's asking for something more. I like to think that God is always asking for more from us. In this first question... It's about their discussion. In the second question, it's about their hearts. Uh, the language here is a small reference, sure, to the earlier question, but there's more. If Jesus wanted to know with his first question, uh, just a few words ago, what you're holding on to, with this question, as far as I imagine it, he seems to be asking what kind of a person 
are you becoming because of what you hold on to? Now, uh, I am working uh, with this message this morning and the last two weeks, and I'm trying to imagine some things. I don't know if you can get that out of a two-word question, but I think Jesus is asking for his disciples to tell him what, what they have in front of them that is so impressive that they cannot spot God in their midst. As I said a couple of weeks ago, their first response to Jesus when he asks this question about what they're talking about is a physical, emotional response. They are sad, the Bible says. They are struck. They, they are stuck. They ask him, have you no idea what's going on? And what does Jesus say? He says, how is it that you are missing me? What has you so taken that you cannot even see me? Now, one question is current events. The other question is the impact of those events on our ability to see Jesus in our midst. What has your heart so fixed that your eyes are closed to the presence of God in your midst. One of my fears, uh, one of my motivating fears in life is that I will miss the presence of God because I'm focused on something else. It's probably a part of my contemplative bent to try to focus and attend to the presence of God. It's a part of my my, uh, Pentecostal bent. It's a part of my charismatic nature. It's a part of that. It's as much a shaping thing about my personality as anything. I want to be aware of God's presence because I fear missing God's presence. And that fear drives my spirituality. Now, it's not all bad, that drive, but, but I'm saying to you um, that as much as my spirituality is motivated by my love for God, my life with God is motivated by the fear that I will walk a seven and a half mile journey which takes all day long and be in the presence of Jesus and not recognize One of my first roles uh, in ministry, uh, all of my first roles uh, came at my home church where my family is and where I served before coming here eight years ago. And at that church, when I worked there, I was in sort of an administrative uh, leadership role, sort of like an executive pastor who um, did preaching and teaching and sort of classical ministry. And so um, at Sweet Holy Spirit, I did more there than I should have done, probably, and that really testifies to the trust of that community in me, sad people that they were, my family. Uh, they they uh, trusted and identified, helped me identify my call, and as I served at that church, I um, 
try to be honest because my wife's in the room. I worked about uh, 50 hours a week or so um, there. And is that about, that's about right. That's what we're going to go with. And um, there were four or five services on a Sunday, two or three services in the middle of the day. We operated two 30,000 square foot buildings and they were fully operational all week long. And uh, it wasn't what I thought pastoral ministry would be for the long term for me, which turned to discernment about how I eventually would come away from that church. But every day was packed. And, um, and I used to plan about 30% of my day, and the other 65, 70% would get filled in. But I would plan less than half of the day and go through the day saying, I've got to get these things done. I've got to meet with this accountant. I've got to talk to this lawyer. I've got to f- ask this person, do they really like working for the church because we need them to quit? Um, it, was, it was interesting. And I remember feeling like, Every day I had to keep moving, so I couldn't really stop and enjoy conversations and couldn't really hee-haw. And that still impacts how I do ministry. I'm not really a funny person when I'm at work. I have something to do. And, um, but one of my favorite and most powerful teachers of pastoral ministry was a delivered and rescued crack addict. Um, She, by God's grace, has been and was, certainly back then when I was there, uh, rescued from that addiction, actively being rescued from that addiction. And she would come in to my office, and you had to go through somebody else's office to get to me. You couldn't just come in my office. You had to go through a kind of anti-office, anti-chamber. And so she would walk into my office, and she would interrupt whatever I had going on. And it took several months of this for me to notice that she was teaching me what it meant to be a pastor, and she was teaching me what it meant to be in the presence of God. That being in the presence of God wasn't about me having things I needed to get done, fixing my attention on things to do, but being in the presence of God was being interrupted by her and her story and being made by her and her story. Um, And she taught me that when we worry over things, we become worriers. And when we are worriers, we are less able to be travelers with God. She taught, she still teaches me whenever I see her. She, all of this comes back to me. It's a small and almost unnoticeable thing. But she taught me the difference between worrying and, 
and prayer, that, that worrying and turning over the day, the schedule, the task is one thing. That's, that's what we do. I have to get this done. I have this project. I have this time clock. Prayer is like repentance. Well, what is repentance? You know that word, that word that's often overused. Repentance is seeing our sins and turning them toward God. It's not just turning away from our sin, but it is turning our sin and ourselves toward God. It is that subtle ability that we have to say to God when we are around sin, when we are in sin, we turn to God and we say, in other words, do you see this? Are you here with me in this? Am I alone in this? Are you around? That is, that is repentance. It is not so much we turn away from sin as much as we turn toward God and we say in, in our own way, God, are you in this? Are you here with me in this? And, 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 and she teaches me that that worrying can translate into prayer and into ministry only when we see life as God sees it. And God often, often sees life. And we would look at what God sees as a grand, annoying interruption when God would see that as life. Does that make sense? So, 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 so when we worry, we see life. When we pray, we see life as God sees it. Jesus asked these two people, what things? What are you focusing on that you miss me? What are you looking at that you do not see me. So the question for us, I think, is are we becoming a people who notices the work of God as we travel, even if we're grieving like these two? Do we notice glimpses of the presence of God as we stay in a particular direction with our family? Are we able to track uh, snatches of God's nearness at the job we love, at the job we hate, at the job we don't have, are we able to see these things? Jesus asks, what thing? And it may be that the call to us in Christ's tone and voice is to come in a different direction, to walk at a different speed so that we can begin to notice God's company. So the first question he asks is, what are you discussing together as you walk along? What are you holding on to? The second question, what things has to do with our focus and whether or not our focus is prayerful or if it's fretful? Are we, are we in the company of God or are we surrounded by the worries of life? The third question, the last question. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? This question is the clincher, actually, in this conversation. 
there are responses that these two have. We looked at their responses last time, and their responses are in the text here. What Jesus is telling these two faithful followers is that what they've said about God is really lacking. Now, he, he hears them as they evangelize him, right? That's the language I use. They are witnessing to Jesus in this passage. They are talking about their understanding of God, their experience of God. They're telling Jesus the story of Jesus as they filter it through their lives. And Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't correct some heresy. He doesn't tell them you're off. He doesn't tell them that you're missing the target. He doesn't do that. They are not wrong. They are simply incomplete in their understanding. And and I imagine these two people beginning to disengage with Jesus at this point. I mean, here they are walking uh, together. I see them starting to slow down. I see one of them saying, well, you know, I mean, first you didn't know what was going on. You didn't have an idea about the crucifixion. And now you're calling us fools. And now we know you're crazy. And, 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 and you're calling us strange, and you're talking about suffering. You're not saying things we haven't heard. I mean, I think we even heard Jesus preach this kind of stuff. And, and I see them, because Jesus is still a stranger to them, asking them questions. And now this stranger, who wasn't even caught up on current events, is talking theologically to them. And what I appreciate about Jesus' response here in the passage, is that he keeps talking to them. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, miss a beat. Um, they said, this is the two of them in verse 23, that his body was missing and they had seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And Jesus keeps going. Luke says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself this is where I get envious this one of my sins is envy and it comes up even when I read scripture because I envy these two people here they are walking with Jesus and Jesus takes them from the beginning of scripture through his own life he interprets the scriptures for them and he does not stop he is unrelenting he tells them all the things concerning himself he gives them uh, more More than the teacher's notes, he turns the teacher's life inside out and says, you've known some things, but I need to explain some things. I know you've been proclaiming things about me, he seems to say, but I want to explain some stuff to you. What makes our relationships with God and with other people for that matter. What makes our relationship work is not so much the answers that we have, 
as the explanations. I thought about this, and I think it's true. Um, I, I, I will use myself uh, rather than pick on you. I have a wife, my wife Dawn. We've been doing this for, you are not my wife, you are my son. Uh, and thank you, thank you. Talk back to me, son. That is good. Say amen. That's good, son. Right. But I'm talking about your mother, okay? Whole world doesn't revolve around you. Um, so uh, I, I, have, I have a wife, and I tell my wife um, from time to time that I love her. And I think if you're married, I think if you're in a relationship, I think if you love somebody, you should tell them that. And I'm sure my wife doesn't disagree when I say to her, uh, I love you. I think she likes to hear that. Um, and uh, that, in some ways, will, n- will not be untrue. It will never be wrong. But telling Dawn, I love you, may lose power, may lose persuasion. Because, I mean, I've been telling her the same thing all these years, right? Since we were like 12. That's when we got married. We were 12. And... Um, I love you. That, in some ways, in my example today, is the answer. It's I love you. The explanation is why I love Dawn. And it occurs to me this morning as I think about Jesus and as I think about this text and as I think about Dawn, that I love you will never be wrong, but I love you can be less impressive as you go along. What, what keeps me in the loving relationship is the reason I have in 2014 for loving Dawn that in 2001, I didn't have. Like, I can tell her I love her. I can say, this is why I love you. One is an answer. The other is an explanation. And Jesus walks with his disciples here. And he starts to take their answers and deepen them and mature the disciples by saying you're not wrong, but here's an explanation you don't have. By saying to them, you're on the right course, you're closer to God than you actually imagine." But here's what you need to know now about me. He gives them explanations, and it's their explanation that that, um, generates this heart-flaming response that they bring up later on, which we may get to. I'm I'm courting with the idea of doing a third week on this uh, if I get to preach again. Uh, uh, in August I'm going to preach and may come back to this because the third piece in this is after they get to where they are going to beg Jesus and to stay the night um, and, 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 and Jesus take the bread and, and bring them into this meal. But here it is the explanation and not the answer. They already have the answer. Some of, you, some of you all know more about the Bible than I know. And I've been in school a long time with the Bible. Uh, but, but I probably know better explanations than you because I spend my days looking at the explanation. Right? 
and, and being able to sort of link the answers with the explanation. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do as disciples in this passage, followers of Jesus, who have good answers and who need explanations. And he, in giving explanations as I close, talks to them about his suffering. He calls them fools. He says, it's hard for you to believe what the prophets have said. But wasn't it predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things? And I don't want to talk a whole lot about suffering in the last three minutes of a sermon because it's been done before and more needs to be said than I will say here. My point is to just frame the question of Jesus as a question for us. And if I use my imagination this morning to fill in Luke's summary, because he only gives us a summary here. Jesus is walking for miles with these two. So there's more in this conversation than we have. I think Jesus is saying a few things about suffering, and I will be done. The first I think he is saying is, I suffered for you. I suffered for you both. I think Jesus is saying, I suffered for the people you're angry with. Remember the context, the Passover, Jesus' crucifixion. They haven't really believed that Jesus is alive. I suffered for the people you're angry with. Thirdly, I suffered for the vision you see in the future. I suffered and you will too if you follow me. I think Jesus talks to them about how he suffered and won. I think Jesus says to them, I suffered and won, and you will too if you follow me. As I said, I get really envious of these two disciples in verse 27 where Jesus begins with Moses and all the prophets, and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And this morning, as I close this message, I want to give you two, maybe three minutes of space and quiet where you can begin uh, a conversation with Jesus where you ask him to explain some things to you. Maybe this morning you sit here and you are like these folks in Emmaus and and they have their questions for Jesus and Jesus has his questions for them. Maybe you this morning need Jesus to take you to the beginning of something, to keep talking to you, to give you explanations where you only have answers. So take a couple minutes this morning in the presence of Jesus. And to open up a conversation where he begins to give you some explanation.